Uh, good morning, brethren. Uh, please turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses. So First Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first verses. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach also you believe. Amen. Our brothers and sisters, for a time together this morning, I want to ask two questions. I want us to look at these two questions. Why do we exist as a church? And the second question, which is going to be uh, the main part of our sermon, is how do we remain true to our purpose for existence? So we want to see why do we exist? And having answered that question, we want to say, how do we make sure that as a church we continue living according to that purpose? We become true to that purpose. So for us to actually look at that, we need to start from the beginning. Why do we exist as a church? In the beginning, we see God. We see God full and complete in his attributes. We see God in his excellencies. We see God who is righteous. We see God who is eternal. God who is wise. God who is glorious. Who is majestic. Who is sovereign. And God who is good. And we see God who is the creator. In Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. We see God puts man and woman in the garden and then he gives them instructions. In Genesis 2.16, we see this. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You you shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And as we turn to the third chapter of Genesis, we see a tragedy of tragedies. We see man falling into sin, despising the word of God and doing the opposite of what God commanded him to do. We see he who was made to delight in God, despising God. We see he who was made to worship, deifying himself. We see he who was made to depend on God's word, listening to the devil. We see he who was made pure, defiled. And God pronounces judgment and the curse. Death enters the world. But 
In all of this, God gives a glimpse of hope. In Genesis 3.15, we see the first mention of God's intervention. We see the first pronouncement of the good news. We see the first proclamation of the gospel hope. We see the the proto-evangelion. We see in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise is clear. A child will come from the woman and he will conquer evil in the world. And the question is, who is this child? Who is this offspring who will do this? This is the question of the Old Testament. Who is this offspring? Who is this man who will conquer evil? Who is this man who will redeem people from their sins? Who is this man who will bring peace between God and men? Who is this child? That is the question of the Old Testament. And so, why do we exist as a church? We exist to tell the world that we know this man. We know this promised Messiah. We know this promised Messiah who conquers the evil, who redeems people from their sins, who brings peace between God and men. Matthew 121 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Brethren, the church is a vehicle in which God fulfills his promise to save the nations. We see repeatedly in scripture God's heart for the nations is that they would be saved. God's heart for people is that they would delight in his law. Psalm chapter 1 verse 2. God's heart for his people is that they would stop plotting. They would bow before his son. They would serve him with fear. They would rejoice in trembling. Psalm chapter 2. God's heart for his own people is that they would know his way. Psalm 67. Oh, that your way may be known on earth. And your saving power among all nations. And the church is the vehicle in which God fulfills his promise to save the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is Psalm 67. The heart of God for nations is that they would be saved. This is the psalmist petition under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the desire of God for nations, that people would know God. So why do we exist as a church? We exist to carry out the global evangelistic disciple-making mission of God. The church exists to evangelize the lost, and the church exists to edify the saints. The church exists to carry out the global, evangelistic, and disciple-making mission of God. Listen to how Jesus puts it in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And brothers and sisters, God's design is that this would happen in the context of the local church. This cannot happen in isolation. It has to happen in the context of the local church. So now let's look at our second question. We've answered our first question. Why do we exist as a church? We exist to carry out the global evangelistic disciple-making mission of God. Now, how do we ensure that we stick to that purpose? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, brothers and sisters, I want us to see three lessons on how to do church God's way so that we don't swerve away from God's mission for the church. I want, I want us to see three lessons on how to do church God's way so we don't swerve away from God's mission for the church. Let's look at our passage again, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance to the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, how do we stick true to our purpose? The first point is this. We must preserve and prioritize the gospel. We must preserve and prioritize the gospel. Paul uses two interesting terms, as we see here in verse 3. He uses these terms, delivered and received. And if you are quickly reading here, you might think that these are just two incidental verbs. But these are not just two incidental verbs. These are used purposefully. Paul is telling his hearers here that I brought the gospel to you without any modification. He's saying, I have, I have delivered to you what I've received. He's saying, I delivered the same news to you in the same way that I've received them. I've presented the good news without any alteration. I brought the gospel to you verbatim. This is what he's saying. The idea here is that I have memorized it and I have recited it to you. The point that Paul is driving to here is that the gospel is not any of his inventions. He did not come up with this message. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I've received. Galatians 1 verse 11, Paul emphasizes this point. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Our task is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without any modification. Our task is to preserve the gospel. There are so many messages fighting for prominence in the church. I'm looking for water. <laughs> there are so many messages fighting for prominence in the church. There are many agendas that are trying to hijack the gospel mission of the church. But the Apostle Paul is emphasizing to us this morning that our task as the church is to preserve and prioritize the gospel. We are not called to invent a new message. We are not called to reinvent the gospel. We are not called to reshape the gospel message to fit our culture. We are called to deliver what we have received. Our calling as a church, brothers and sisters, is to preach the pure message of Jesus Christ. 
The apostle is not only preserving the gospel, but he's prioritizing the gospel. Look with me here at 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance. He says, of first importance. 1 Corinthians 2, he says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. This is our calling as a church, to preach Christ. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, preach Christ, that is the magnet. He will draw his own to himself. If you want to see conversions, there must be more constant preaching of Christ. Christ must be in every sermon. He must be top and bottom of all the theology that is preached. And brethren, this is the Christ that we are resolved to preach as we begin this work. This is where we will start. This is where we will continue and this is where we will end. We will preach Christ and Him crucified. And this is our conviction, brothers. We are resolved to preserve the gospel and to prioritize the gospel. Well then, what is the gospel? And this brings us to our second lesson. If we want to be a church that is true to God's King, God's global evangelistic mission of saving people, saving all nations, we need to articulate the gospel. So we, we, we don't only preserve and prioritize the gospel. We don't talk about the gospel in nebular terms, in non-specific terms. But we, we must articulate the gospel. Look at how this passage continues. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. And for us to understand the gospel, the good news, we have to begin with the bad news. The bad news is that all men and women apart from Christ are in sin and under the wrath of God. All men and women are in sin apart from Christ. They are under the wrath of God apart from Christ. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. And, and it's as if the Apostle Paul is anticipating someone to raise his hand. He says, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the gospel, the good news, begins with the bad news. The good news begins with the bad news. That all men and women are sinners and they are under the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, to be without Jesus Christ is to be cursed by God. To be without Christ is to be subjected to eternal death and condemnation. To be without Christ is to be without a mediator. Is to be under the righteous judgment of God. Is to be God's enemy. To be without Christ is to be forsaken by God. It's to be in the world without an advocate. It is to be hopeless in the world. To be without Christ is to be one who is under sin and under the wrath and the judgment of God. All men apart from Christ are in this condition. 
The apostle continues to articulate the gospel. Now he gets to the good news. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. He says, Christ died for our sins. Now we've observed that all men and women are sinners. Now he says, Christ died for our sins. And the apostle is, is, is highlighting a few things in this statement. And the first is Christ. He, he, is, he is highlighting to us the title of Jesus Christ. He's telling us that the one who died for our sins is not just a mere creature. It was not just an angel. It's not just some hero. But it is Christ himself, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, God's beloved. It is the very God of very God. It is Jesus Christ, our able and our willing Savior. It is, it is the one that who died. It is Jesus Christ who came to be our representative. It is the second Adam who fulfills what the first Adam failed to achieve. It is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, God's eternal son. He fulfills what the first Adam could not fulfill. We see the first Adam, he sinned in the garden. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, bore sin in the garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam was tempted by Satan and fell. But the second Adam, Jesus, was tempted by all the forces and evil and remained steadfast in obedience. We see the first Adam, how he failed, surrounded with glory, with beauty, with harmony and joy in the garden, but he refused to obey. But Jesus, the second Adam, was surrounded with bitterness and sorrow, but he was obedient to death on the cross. We see Jesus here, our second Adam, who fulfills what the first Adam could not fulfill. The first Adam forfeited and lost grace in Eden. Jesus merited and applied grace in Gethsemane. The first Adam took fruit from Eve's hand. Jesus took the cup from God's hand. The first Adam was conquered by the devil. Jesus, the second Adam, conquered the devil. The first Adam reached out to grasp sin. Jesus reached out to forgive sin. It is Christ who died. God brought out the best of all to save the worst of all. That is why we can confidently say in Romans 8, the chitre, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ. Jesus is the one who died. First Peter 1.18 It is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish and defect. It is Christ who died for our sins. The second thing that Paul highlights here is that Jesus Christ was truly physically dead. That's why he says he was buried. He's emphasizing that point. He was truly physically dead. Jesus Christ did not faint. He did not merely spiritually die. He did not get in a coma. Jesus truly, literally, physically died for our sins. I want you to see the third thing that Paul is emphasizing here in this passage. Christ died for our sins. You see, substitution. Substitution. Christ died, not for his own sins, 
for our sins. It is this unfair exchange. Christ died in our place to take our sin. Christ died in our place to absorb the wrath of the Father towards us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died in our place to take away our sin. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For who? For us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ died in our place to secure forgiveness for us. Christ died in our place to reconcile us with the Father. Christ died in our place to display the justice of God. Christ died in our place to display the love of God towards us. Christ died in our place to redeem us from our sin. Christ died in our place to present us spotless before the Father. Christ died in our place to forgive us from sin. Christ died in our place so that we might become God's righteousness. Christ died in our place. The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took what we deserved and he gave us what we did not deserve. A hymn says, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? It's true what they said of him in Luke 15 verse 2. This man welcomes sinners. Jesus Christ lived a perfect holy life. He put himself in our place. He took the punishment for our sin. He satisfied God's justice. He secured salvation for us. And brothers and sisters, if we are to be strong Christians, if we are to be a strong church, we need to be able to articulate the gospel first to ourselves and to others. A church that cannot articulate the gospel will be a weak church. A church stands or falls upon its understanding of the gospel. And if we fail, if we are found lacking in our understanding of the gospel, in our understanding of what God has done for us, in our understanding of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, in our understanding of man's condition apart from Christ, in our understanding of what God has done to save us, or who God has sent to save us, then we will be found wanting as a church, tossed to and fro by every doctrine that comes. This is what it means to articulate the gospel. Man is hopeless apart from God. Jesus Christ died for us. Third, Christ was raised for us, never to die again. Look there, verse 3 and verse 4. For I deliver to you a so first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, for, for, for God to fully forgive us, for our salvation to be fully complete, we did not just need Jesus to die for us, 
but he also had to be raised for us. The idea here is not just that Christ was raised, but that Christ was raised never to die again. Christ's resurrection is the vindication of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the stamp of God's approval towards the work of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is God's amen to his prayer. It is God's yes to his request. It is God's acceptance of his work. It is God's approval of his sacrifice. It is God's proclamation of it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross and he said it is finished, he meant that his work was finished. And when he was raised, it was the Father putting a stamp of approval that truly this work is finished. Romans 4.25 He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Paul wants us to know for sure that this doctrine is critical to Christianity. Paul wants us to see what would happen if Jesus was not raised. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see here that this this doctrine is so important to the Christian faith and it's so important to our understanding of the gospel that apart from the doctrine of the resurrection, there is no salvation at all. Look at verse 14. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Apostle Paul here is highlighting the importance of this doctrine. All our prayers are in vain if Jesus was not raised. He says, if Jesus was not raised, all preaching has been in vain. All Bible studies have been in vain. All pursuits for holiness have been in vain. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, all self-denial has been in vain. All time spent in fellowship has been in vain. All church attendance has been in vain. All evangelism has been in vain. It has all been in vain. Our faith has been in vain. Verse 15, he says, we are liars about God if Christ has not been raised. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the gospel is not complete without the doctrine of the resurrection. Verse 19 tells us this. If Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, then Christianity is a scam. And we are of people, of all people, most to be pitied. But, oh how I love this contrast in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Another version puts it this way. But now Christ is risen from the dead. To emphasize that now, as we speak, Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive, and therefore all our prayers are heard by God. Jesus Christ is alive. All preaching will be used by God. All our Bible studies will lead us to a better knowledge of Him. The pursuit of holiness is glorious. Self-denial brings joy to God and us. Time spent in fellowship is a blessing. Evangelism is worth it. Christ has been raised. Our lives are meaningful. We have hope. Sin has been taken away. No more condemnation and fear. We have peace with God. Jesus Christ has been raised. We have an able and willing mediator. Christ has been raised. We too will be raised. We'll be raised with bodies that are sinless and incapable of sin. 
will be raised to immortality. And this is the gospel hope that we preach. This is the message of hope that we preach to the world. That believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Believe in Jesus Christ because we we understand that this world is not all that there is. We will be raised. We will be raised with him. Christ has been raised. We can confidently say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ has been raised. We are saved. We can say, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Christ has been saved. Christ has been raised. And because of that, we are saved. And I also want you to see that the gospel... Our salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See how the Apostle Paul attributes his changed life. He attributes this to the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, it says, by, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The Apostle Paul attributes his changed life to the grace of of God. And, and this is the gospel that we present. This is the gospel that we articulate. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And church, let us preserve the gospel. Let us articulate the gospel. And third, let us labor for the gospel. Look at the, the verse 58 here, the last verse of this chapter, chapter 15, says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The Apostle Paul makes an argument for the gospel and for the resurrection in this entire chapter of First Corinthians 15. And at the end of it all, he says, Therefore, he says, because of the gospel and the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, because now we have hope, because we have been rescued by a risen Savior, because the tomb is empty, because our salvation is secure, because we have hope for eternal life, we have confidence that we'll be raised in glory. We can be steadfast right now. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, because our sins have been forgiven, let us labor for the gospel. And this is the conclusion that the Apostle Paul gets to. He says, let us labor for the gospel by fighting sin. Let us labor for the gospel by pursuing holiness, by staying connected with other believers, by being faithful where God has placed us. Let us labor for the gospel by saving our church. I want to speak a bit on this application point by saving our church. Let's labor for the gospel by saving our church. As we begin this new church plant, our motivation has to come from the gospel to serve God. And Apostle Paul says, anyone who understands the gospel 
will want to serve Jesus Christ right now. And so let's labor, labor for the gospel by serving our church. And perhaps you might ask, how can I serve my church? How can I serve my church? First, you can serve your church by prioritizing the Lord's Day gathering. Your presence serves your church. Consider arriving early so that you can chat with more people, you can interact with more people, and you can introduce yourself to strangers. Step out of your comfort zone and welcome visitors. For, for other people, it might be their first time in a Christian church. Consider serving on a regular basis. Uh, ask where you can serve. Ask if there's any areas where you can help. And sing loudly and cheerfully for the glory of God and the, for, for the good of the whole church. Another way that you can labor for the gospel is don't rush out after the service. Have you considered to spend some time to interact with people, to talk about the sermon, to ask people what they've learned from the sermon, how they've been impacted, and how you can pray for them each week? There's various ways that you can serve in the church, and you need to show this willingness to serve in the church, and this must start from your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of what Christ has done for us. So let me close with this passage. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So church, let us prioritize the gospel. Let us articulate the gospel. And let us labor for the gospel. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask that you'd help us to apply your word, to be doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's sing our last song, uh, Give Me Jesus.